if you don't know me yet, my name is Jake. I'm part of the team here. Uh, that's just how we do introductions here. We do a little, you know, make sure you're paying attention. Uh, I want to add a few announcements to Heath's announcements. And the first is this. Uh, if you have not yet received uh, your mid-year giving letter, those are out in the mail this week. And so at about halfway through the year, if you've given at South Vancouver, uh, Kitsilano, um, East Vancouver, if you've given at any of the neighborhood churches, uh, you would have received or you will receive a giving letter just updating you as to where we're at in terms of our giving goals and to meet our budget. And so those are coming out this week. Uh, if you haven't yet received one, don't worry, it's coming. Uh, if you don't receive one in a few weeks' time, let us know and we would love to, to send you one. If you gave, you'll be getting one of those of those letters. That's my first announcement that I wanted to make. The second is this. We have been doing a lot of things. We have been very busy as a, as, as a church looking to plant in Hastings Sunrise. We've been having barbecues. I'm pretty sure there's like a bench named after us in New Brighton by now. Like we're single-handedly funding uh, that park and all the park rentals. Uh, that go on at that park. Uh, we know we've been meeting, we've been gathering, we've been having uh, community group leader training uh, throughout the, the, the months leading up to our plant. We've been really busy. And, and that busyness at times can, can make us feel as if it's up to us. If we're going to make it in Hastings Sunrise, if we're going to make disciples there and reach the people of Hastings Sunrise with the gospel, uh, it can feel at times as if it's up to us. And, and nothing could be further both theologically and practically from the truth. It is not up to us. Indeed, we are dependent upon the Lord and his moving if we're going to reach people in Hastings Sunrise with the gospel. So to that end, August will be a time for us as a community of prayer and fasting. And let me explain to you what that means. It's going to come uh, sort of in three different levels or three different uh, parts, if you will. The first is this. Uh, our gatherings in August, instead of responding as we normally do, uh, some of it will be the same, uh, we'll have an intentional time of prayer focus during our gatherings uh, in August uh, here uh, in this space. Uh, specific prayer items, praying for that as a corporate body during our gatherings. That's the first thing. The second is this. Uh, we'll be having prayer evenings throughout the month of August, like 10 to 12 prayer evenings that you can come uh, to as many of those or as little of those uh, as you would like. Uh, we'll be having those throughout the city. Those will also be at the homes of our different community group leaders. And so if you're like, hey, uh, Hugo and Winnie are hosting a prayer evening. I'm actually going to be part of their community group. It makes sense that I go to that prayer evening at their house. That's a great little segue for you there. So we'll be having our gatherings different. Uh, we'll be having, uh, having the, these prayer evenings for the month of August. would encourage you to go to those. We'll be posting a schedule uh, for these evenings in the coming weeks. And the third thing is this. There's a Google Doc uh, that you can find. Uh, there'll be a blog post going out tomorrow with all this information. But there's a Google Doc that you can find and sign up for a time slot, morning, afternoon, and evening, so that we have somebody praying uh, August 1st to 31st uh, throughout the entire month. That encourage you as a church, uh, once you get that Google Doc link, uh, to sign up for one of those prayer slots and be praying. Uh, we believe, and this is not just like a, like a fun little prayer exercise or like a, like a little cool exercise as a church. No, we believe that we can do nothing of value, nothing meaningful in the community of Hastings Sunrise if we are not first dependent in prayer. Uh, there's a link to, to a document that we wrote a, a few years ago about fasting. Uh, it explains to you what fasting looks like, what it doesn't look like, uh, some helpful uh, tips and, and tricks, if you will. But if you want to talk at, at all any more about this, I would love to talk to you. Email me, jake at christdchurch.ca. I would love to tell you more about the, the heart behind this, what this actually looks like. There is a blog post coming out tomorrow saying all of this. So if you're like, I don't know what he's talking about right now, uh, th that's fine. A blog post is coming tomorrow to help explain all of this stuff. Sound good? Yes. Thank you, Josh. 
and no one else. Uh, with that said, would you stand with me now for the reading of God's Word? Proverbs 30, 7 to 9. Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. You may be seated. And as you're being seated, let's just pray together. Jesus, we, we love you. And we are so thankful that you are by your spirit. You're present here with us now. You're, you're with us. And what a gift that is. We ask, Lord, that now as we listen to your word, that you would speak to us. And not just to us, but to our hearts. Uh, to the things that we deeply love and desire. The things that we keep from others. Lord, would we now uh, bring these to bear before you? Lord, we want to be a changed people. So would you do that work in us now by your spirit? Amen. You guys awake? Yes? I know it's hot out there. It's beautiful out there. You kind of came in off like the trails or something. This is an exciting time. Uh, let's cut right to the chase. Uh, today, uh, we are talking about our bank account. So if you weren't awake, now you're awake, right? We're talking about our bank accounts today. We're talking about money today. We're talking about our investments or lack of investments. We're talking about our lavish spending or our miserly uh, penny-pinching uh, we're talking about that number you pull up on your iPhone each night, and depending on what that number looks like, either leads to a night of like anxious, like tossing and turning, or like a, like a pleasant sleep. Uh, our time in Proverbs this afternoon has brought us to the topic of, of money, of money. And I know this is a touchy subject, not just because you're awkwardly quiet, uh, but because Jesus says that there is a direct link between money and our hearts. That those two are intimately linked. He says in Matthew 6, 21 this, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, money acts as this window into our desires, our deepest longings, exposing the things that capture our imaginations, our fantasies, our truest thoughts. And it's through that window, the window of money, that I want us to bravely look at this afternoon. And to do this, I want us to look at the prayer of Agur, son of Jacka. We just heard read from Proverbs 37 to 9. Uh, now, just to be, you know, set the stage here, we don't really know who Agur, son of Jacka, was. He is one of the contributors uh, to Proverbs. Uh, he's not a king, probably a court official. But, but we know this, he fears the Lord. And he's writing wisdom as someone who fears the Lord. And it's his prayer in verse 7 to 9. Strangely, the only prayer we find in the book of Proverbs. It's his prayer in verses 7 to 9 that I want to ground our time in Proverbs today as we look at this topic of, of money. And together, I want us to work towards one goal, one simple goal, answering the question, how can I pray and how can you pray like Agur does about money? How can we pray like Agur does about money? See, if you look closely at our text for today, you see that Agur, son of Jacka, has a view of money that might seem strange to many of us. Uh, notice 
Uh, Edgar is, is not a disciple of Wall Street uh, whose well-being rises and falls with how the market is doing. Nor is Edgar a disciple of a poverty mindset, thinking, if I only got rid of my stuff, if I only got rid of my things, then I'd be happy, then life would be simple, it'd be so much easier that way. For Edgar, and here's the key, the solution lies elsewhere. It lies elsewhere. Edgar has found some contented middle ground. The question we should be asking now is, what's his solution to our often dysfunctional relationship to money? That's our question today. And to answer it, here's our three points. We'll begin by first seeing what isn't the problem. What, what isn't the problem? The second is this. We'll look at, after we see what isn't the problem, what, what actually is the problem. What, what is the problem when it comes to money? And thirdly, finally, what isn't the problem? What is the problem? And then what the solution is. So what isn't the problem? What is the problem and solution? You're with me? Yes, thank you. I'm really needy today, so I need your help. There, here we go. First, the problem isn't, the problem isn't money. The problem isn't money. I just want you to hear that. The problem, when it comes to money, is not money. Money's not the problem. Now, you might have heard it said, or you maybe uh, you're new to your Bible, or, or you overheard an uncle or an aunt say somewhere, that the Bible says that money is the root of all evil. Maybe you've heard that before. If that's true, I would instruct you now, take your wallets, uh, dump out all those little demons that are in your wallets, and I will come and pick them up later, okay? Uh, don't worry, I'll do that for you. The Bible does not say that money is the root of all evil. 1 Timothy 6 verse 10 says this, the love of money is the root of all evil. Money, let me, hear me, is not the problem. Money itself is not the problem. It's the love of money that's the problem, and we'll get to that in a bit. Now, I say all this because you might be surprised that the tone of Proverbs towards money is, on the whole, neutral, and if anything, it's probably more positive than we're comfortable with. Proverbs speaks positively about money on the whole. It has a positive view of money. We see that money isn't the problem in the text we just heard read from Sue already. Did you catch that? Listen again to Agur's prayer. Two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. Verse 8. It's a weird prayer. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. And then he says, give me neither poverty nor riches. In Agur's ideal world, the world that he's praying for, he's not asking for a ton of money, nor is he asking that God would keep all the money away from him. Why? Because, and hear me again, money isn't the problem. Building on what we learned last week with the righteous and, and, and the wicked, what we see in Proverbs is that you can be righteous and rich and righteous and poor. We see in Proverbs that there are those who are righteous and rich, those who disadvantage themselves with their money in order to advantage others. In the same way, the poor are invited to disadvantage themselves financially in order to advantage others. Also, we'll see, and this is getting ahead of ourselves, though, that you can be wicked and rich, and wicked and poor. To, to see this, I want us to notice the righteous rich in Proverbs 11, 23 to 24. Look at this. The desire of the righteous ends only in good. The expectation of the wicked in wrath. One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give, and only suffers want. 
The righteous rich are those who disadvantage themselves to advantage others by giving freely and generously. Indeed, that is is the very purpose in Proverbs for their wealth, that they might give freely and generously. Further to that point, we also see that as they give freely and, and generously, they're actually imitating the very character of God who is the ultimate giver. The, the, the ultimate sharer. If you go to Genesis 2, and this isn't in my notes, this could be a bit scrambled, but that's okay. If you go to Genesis 2, you find in Genesis 2, when God creates the world, there's a particular area where he has all the gold concentrated. Now, if, if God was this, this sort of communist socialist, like we'd like, like him to be sometimes, why didn't he spread all the gold out? Why didn't he give it to everybody, right? Like an equal amount of gold to each country, to to each nation. Why did he put gold all in one spot? Why are some nations resource rich and other nations resource poor? Because God, and here's the joy, is calling his people as image bearers to reflect his character who is the ultimate sharer, the ultimate giver. The righteous rich have the opportunity to reflect the very character and nature of God. It's, it's amazing. Now let's push pause for a second. Because this came up this week. Maybe to some of you this idea of a righteous rich person rubs you the wrong way. You don't quite like it. It's become increasingly popular in our culture in our day and age, to blame our societal and personal problems on rich people. Right? It's very popular. Do you want to get elected in Vancouver? Like, blame people who own houses. Right? Blame people who, who, who come in and, and they have all their money. Right? Why can't I buy a house? Well, because all the rich people moved here. Why can't I afford to buy that Tesla that I deserve? I deserve that Tesla, right? I want to be cool and eco-friendly. I deserve that, right? Because rich people, they're willing to pay that premium, right? It's the rich people's fault. Why do I feel like a failure in life? Why do I feel like I've done nothing with my job and my time? Because I keep on getting passed on the road by Ferraris with ends on the back of them, right? Listen, if you say something disparaging about the poor in Vancouver... Everyone is rightfully so all over you. But take a shot at the rich, blame the rich, you might get a high five. You might get a commendation. You might get elected. And to this sentiment, I want to say two things. One, and the first is like a reality check. We are the rich people. We're the rich people. If you make over $30,000 a year, you're in the top 1.23% of the richest people in the world. You made it. You're the rich people. We are the rich people. You and I on a daily basis sitting in this air conditioning room, which doesn't really feel like it right now. <laughs> you and I on a daily basis with our Wi-Fi and our beds and, and our running water, we're enjoying luxuries that royalty throughout the ages have longed for, only dreamed of. What, you turn a tap and water comes out? Wow. That's the first thing. The second is this, and I was super convicted of this this week. In Vancouver, if we hate rich people, we have failed as missionaries. We, we fail. We will not share the good news with people we hate. We won't. I avoid Yale Town for a reason. 
But to my shame, so why do we hate rich people? I think for a few reasons. In James, a book that's been called the wisdom literature of the New Testament, he says this, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Listen to what James says. You desire and you do not have. So what do you do? So you murder. You covet and cannot, cannot obtain. So you fight and you quarrel. We love money, and if we can't get it, we hate those who have it. Or we do this, and we're really good at this. We create a false narrative where those rich people, well, they must also be wicked people. They must have got it in some unjust way, some unfair leg up. And I hate to burst your bubble, but it's just not true all the time. It's just not true necessarily. We hate the rich because of sinful and misdirected loves and, and desires. But we also hate the rich because of misdirected fear. Misdirected fear. Maybe you can relate to this. Have you ever been in a room before where somebody very rich and very powerful came in and you were like way too intimidated to talk to them? You kind of like shrunk back and like, you know, you couldn't speak properly and you're a bit like, eh, like I don't know how to approach this person. When I, when I was in my late teens, I was going to a, a music festival on, on Toronto Island which is like the most hipster sentence in the entire world. Uh, and, and I was on this, this boat, and on the boat was this guy named Matt Bonner. Now, to 99% of you, uh, you will not know who Matt Bonner is, but Matt Bonner uh, was the world's most famous uh, bench warmer in the NBA. Like, he's an unbelievable bench warmer. He literally warmed the bench and, and shot like two or three threes a game and got paid millions of dollars for doing that. If I could have Matt Bonner's job, I would have his job. He was also like six foot ten, so I couldn't really do it. So that's fine. But I saw Matt Bonner. He was on this ferry. And I remember looking at him. He's going over to this music festival. He has his VIP pass around his neck, has his nice clothes on, his nice shoes on, had nice sunglasses on. I was like, man. Like he gets paid millions of dollars to sit on a bench. And I, I can never go talk to that guy. Like, what, what can I offer that guy? Here's this insecure teenager from the suburbs. Like, what, what, what can I give him? Fear of man. Fear of man. Silly example, real thing. See, the antidote for fearing the rich in Proverbs, as we saw in in week one of our series, is a proper fear of the Lord. It's a proper fear of the Lord. If we fear the rich, we will never share the gospel with the rich. This idea that God and God alone is worthy of our fear, our praise, our our, our tongue-tiedness. So let me invite us And maybe this is just for me. If that's the case, that's fine. But if if you're like me, let me invite us this afternoon. If you've been harboring thoughts of bitterness, thoughts of hatred, born of misdirected fears, misdirected desires towards the rich, let me invite us this afternoon to repent. And maybe just right now, in the quietness of your heart, you need to ask the Lord for forgiveness. For the ways in which you have looked at image bearers, people who bear the image of God, uh, disdainfully angrily, with hostility. See, Proverbs, indeed, the Bible, envisions a a righteous, rich person, which again, remember, includes us, being committed to radical financial giving that disadvantages themselves in order to advantage others, which raises the question, and this is my favorite pastoral question to ask ever or to answer, what does radical giving mean? What does that mean, radical giving? 
In, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus uh, is in the temple and he's watching people come with their offerings and put their offerings. Uh, you know, I, I imagine it to be a basket, but I know it wasn't a basket. He's watching people give their offerings and Luke records this story. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all she had to live on. Like the amount is almost inconsequential. It almost doesn't matter. thousand dollars can be given without someone even noticing. A thousand dollars for somebody else is zeroing their bank account. They've truly disadvantaged themselves, which means that there can be a righteous rich person and a righteous poor person. It's the giving that is felt that matters. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, has this beautiful little paragraph on giving, and I want to read it to you now. I do not believe one can settle, settle how much we ought to give. I am afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc., is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, he says this, we are probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say that they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditure excludes them. Let me read that last sentence again. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditure excludes them. As the rich, our call is to act righteously, which here means radical generosity, radical giving. The call is the same to the rich and to the poor. It's a call of, yes, radical generosity to the local church. Radical giving to the local church. It's a call of radical generosity to other Christians, other followers of Jesus. It's a call of radical generosity to strangers, to people in countries far, far away. Neighbors you have yet to meet. It's a call to radical generosity. So if the problem isn't money itself, the question then, what is? What, what is the problem? I hate to sound like a broken record, but like our problem last week, our problem today remains the same. It's our heart. Our heart's the problem. The problem is me and you away from God. Notice what Agur prays. I think this is fascinating. Verses 8 and 9. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. I would love to know my heart. I would love to know my desires like Agur does. Like what a self-aware guy, right? He says, don't give me too much money. Because I know my heart, and I know my sinful tendencies and what I'm prone to do, and money will become to me a comfort and a joy. When times get tough, you know, I'll probably just run to money, and so, Lord, you know what? Don't give me too much money. And to Agur's credit, 
Earlier in Proverbs, Solomon warns of that very thing. Proverbs 18, 10 to 11. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. Now look at verse 11. A rich man's wealth is his strong city. And like a high wall in his imagination, the righteous man trusts in the Lord and in the day of trouble runs to him. But the rich man, well, he trusts in his wealth, a fortress that, that when trouble finally does come will be proven to be about as helpful as an imaginary castle, something you just created. Now, rich, as we've seen, does not necessarily equal wicked. There is such a thing as the righteous rich. But, but, there is a real danger that the rich need to be aware of, that you and I need to be aware of. Now, do you remember, I'm asking if you remember, do you remember the story of the rich young ruler or the rich young man uh, that Jesus tells in, in Matthew 19? A rich young ruler comes to Jesus and, and, he, and he shows his exemplary keeping of the law. He, he, he's kept the law perfectly. And Jesus commends him on this and then asks him, now go and sell everything you have. Sell everything you have. Matthew writes this. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Jesus goes on to say, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. It is not impossible for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. It is impossible, however. It is impossible to love money and love Jesus. Now, earlier in Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says you can't serve two masters. You can't serve money and you can't serve me. You have to choose. You can't serve this vision of the good life that centers around how much money I make and how many cars I have and where I own my house and me at the same time. It is impossible for that person to enter the kingdom of heaven. You're going to serve one master, one Lord. All of this should cause us to stop and consider, consider this, that perhaps it is God's gracious gift to you that you don't get wealthier. And I know this sounds counterintuitive, but perhaps it is God's gracious gift to you that you don't get richer. Perhaps it was God's gracious gift to you that you didn't get that raise. Perhaps it's God keeping us from the hoarding and manipulation, the, the misuse of power that so easily comes with wealth. Proverbs eleven twenty six. The people curse him who holds back grain, but a blessing is on the head of him who's, who sells it. Grain was this daily necessity uh, for people in the time of Proverbs. But, but here the vision is one of a wicked person holding back the grain, something that people need in order to drive up the price. It's misuse of power. Perhaps we're not rich, because it's, God good, it's God's good gift to us to keep us from the temptation of fraud. Proverbs 20, 23. Unequal weights are an abomination to the Lord. And false scales, I love this, are not good. And false scales are not good. Fraud is not good. See, ultimately Solomon warns us in Proverbs 10, verse 2. Treasures gained by wickedness do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. 
Now, I believe that Agar's heart is much like ours here today. No doubt. No doubt. There are some here this afternoon, there are some here this afternoon who are called to accumulate great wealth in order that they can do great giving, in order that they can imitate their creator God who is the ultimate sharer. There is no doubt there are some here this afternoon who are called to that. But for many of us, for, for many of us, we need to heed the wisdom in Agar's prayer to not be rich. Lest, he says, I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? When I have this money, when I have these things, who, who is the Lord? So, should we aim to be poor? Should we aim for poverty? Not exactly. Agar continued. Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. See, Agar sees the temptation for the rich, right? Hoard money, steal money, uh, like fraud, like, like to hold back in order to advantage themselves. He sees a temptation for the rich, but he also sees a very real temptation for the poor, namely this temptation to do whatever it takes to survive, to steal and claw, whatever you can do to, to, to survive. He sees that temptation. Further, Agar will continue to say that, listen, life is generally harder if you're poor, to which we'd all sort of nod in agreement, right? The poor, he says, are vulnerable to exploitation. Proverbs 30, verse 14. There are those whose teeth are swords, whose fangs are knives to devour the poor from off the earth, the needy from among mankind. Solomon, he says, listen, even if they're just superficial friends, even if they're just like, like just the casual friends, it's hard to keep friends when you're poor. Proverbs 19.4, wealth brings many new friends. And we can read into whatever motives might be there. But a poor man is deserted by his friend. Now, as an aside, if you're like, well, what should the poor do? What should the poor do? Aren't they justified in their trying to get ahead by any means necessary? As an aside, uh, in addition to the overwhelming biblical claim that we ought to care for the poor, we should not forget that, Proverbs' counsel to the poor is twofold. Indeed, Proverbs' counsel to all of us is twofold. The first is this. Uh, We are to work hard. We're to work hard. We're going to talk about this in a few weeks when we look at the, the diligent worker and the sluggard. But we're called to work hard. If we are able to work If we're capable of working, the call is not to receive handouts, but to work hard, to labor well and to labor wisely. That's the first thing Proverbs says. The second is this. We should seek to increase our wealth. It's not a bad thing to seek to increase our wealth, but the how we do it matters. We are to increase our wealth if God so chooses. Remember, all our plans are still subject to God and his yes or his no. If God so chooses, hear this, Little by little. We are to seek to increase our wealth little by little. Proverbs 13, verse 11. Wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers, what? Little by little will increase it. God's desire is not to provide uh, for you through the lottery or through get-rich-quick schemes, but God's desire is to provide for us by our patient efforts over a lifetime. Or as one Bible teacher put it, not by windfalls, but by handfuls. Not by windfalls, but by handfuls. Now if you're asking, 
Why would God want to provide for us in this way? It's so much more fun just to win the lottery. Uh, handfuls, not windfalls. Come on, God, I want a windfall. Uh, then you're right on the doorstep of seeing the solution, seeing the heart when it comes to money. Here's the solution. As we've been saying all along, for God, it's not about the money. Money isn't the problem. In case you didn't hear me before, money isn't the problem. He blesses us so little by little, and hear this, because he is building us little by little. He is changing our character and our heart and our desires little by little. Remember, money is just the window to our hearts, just the window to, to what's going on in here. And God cares infinitely more about what's going on in here than our bank accounts. He really does. And maybe you heard the reverse before, but he cares infinitely more about your heart than your bank account. Pastor, a Bible teacher, Ray Ortland, he says this. I love this. I doubt that God feels one particle of emotion of about, uh, about American dollars, but he feels surging emotions about us. Little by little, God is increasing us and preparing us to live forever and never dwindle. That is the backstory to all our financial ups and downs. The love of God for you and me. What does God care about? It's our hearts. Remember, Agur prayed, Proverbs 30, verse 8. Did you see it? Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Now look at this. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. He sounds like someone, doesn't he? Hagar sounds like Jesus. Jesus, when he teaches us to pray in the Sermon on the Mount, give us this day our daily bread. How can Hagar, how can Jesus be content with just enough for today? How is that possible? How have they come to a place where their bank accounts don't keep them up at night? Where their mood isn't dictated by the rise and fall of the market? And here's the solution, and here's the key. If this was a book, here's the secret. They found something better. They found something better. For Agar, he sees that life and blessing is found beyond riches and wealth in the fear of the Lord. For Jesus, Jesus, he invites us to compare the fleeting wealth of this world to what he himself gives us, namely everything, everything. Jesus gives us himself. So here's why we hate the rich. Here's why we despise the poor. Here's why we grow anxious with money or stingy with money. Uh, here, here's why we, we, we wake up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat about money. Uh, here's why we do all these things around money. All of these things are symptoms of the greater disease of not seeing what we have in Jesus. Symptoms of the greater disease of not seeing what we have in Jesus. I did this this week, and you should do it this week as well too. If you were to do a survey of the word rich in the New Testament, you would find that in the New Testament, something has changed. And the idea of who is rich in the New Testament, strangely, has nothing to do with money. Has nothing to do with material wealth or material gain. No longer are we spirit-filled followers of Jesus to think in the economy of dollars and euros. Instead, 
We're invited to think in an economy of eternal salvation, eternal assurance, divine love, grace, and mercy, the powerful indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. The overwhelming message of the New Testament is, listen, you can have your gold bars all take being one with Jesus. And isn't that so far from being true for us? We, we want the gold bars. Listen to how Paul talks about wealth. Just in Ephesians alone. I want to overwhelm you for a second. In Ephesians alone, listen to how Paul talks about wealth. Ephesians 1 verse 7. These will all come up on the screen behind me. Don't try to follow along. Ephesians 1 verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of Jesus' grace. Ephesians 1.18, having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know what is the hope of to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Ephesians 2.4, but God being what? Rich in mercy, in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Ephesians 2 verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards who? Us in Christ Jesus. Us who are one with Jesus, we have these things. Ephesians 3, verse 8. To me, this is Paul speaking. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles what? What? Like a health and wealth gospel? Like, like to say, hey, if you follow Jesus, you'll get stuff? No, to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. I'm yelling because I want you to get this. I want to get this. I want us to treasure Jesus above all else. Ephesians 3.16. He thought I was done. I'm not. Ephesians 3.16. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Do you hear the invitation this afternoon? You are being invited to accept the better and truer riches we have in Christ. Not just now, but for all eternity. And not only are you being invited to receive what's better, at the same time, you are being reminded as to what will last. Proverbs 11.4 says, Riches do not profit in the day of wrath. Jesus is coming back. He will judge the living and the dead. But righteousness delivers from death. Proverbs 27.24 for riches do not last forever, and does a crown endure to all generations? Let me answer that for you. No, it, it doesn't. Like when Queen Elizabeth dies, her bones will be like your bones. She'll just be in a fancier tomb. I don't know where she gets buried. Maybe you know. Money's not the problem. In fact, money can be used to serve and enrich the communities we find ourselves in. Further, there's this beautiful invitation to imitate God who gives so generously to us. Money's not the problem. The problem then is once again our hearts with our misplaced desires and misplaced fears. So let me ask, because we're already in way uncomfortable territory, if money is a window to our heart this afternoon... Do we like what we see? Like, do we like what we see? Now, maybe it's been a while since we considered what money reveals about our hearts. And maybe having seen your heart today and thinking about your recent purchases, 
Maybe you're despairing. Like the rich young ruler who wants to follow Jesus, you're despairing. But the pull of money, like the pull of the good life, is just too strong. I, I was out doing a quick little jog in, in, a, in a suburb outside of Vancouver a few days ago. And I remember, you know, two days ago, of course I remember. But I remember running by these houses, and they're backed up onto these golf courses, and I could physically f- feel myself, like, oh, like, like I want that. Like, like, that'd be nice. And thinking in my head, what kind of career moves would I have to make to, to get that house? And I thought, oh, I can never do that. That was a whole conversation. Maybe you're feeling that today. Can, can you hear me? Don't, don't walk away sad. Don't walk away sad. Don't walk away trying to forget the sermon because you don't like what it brings up. Later in the story of the rich young ruler, the people see all this, and they ask this question, which is such a good question. If this guy who has done all these things, if he can get into the kingdom of heaven, they ask this, who then can be saved? Who can get in? If he can't, who can get in? And to this question, Jesus has two things. And there are two things you need to hear this afternoon. The first thing is a hopeful thing. It's a gospel thing. It's a good news thing. Jesus says in Matthew 19, 26, With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. See, maybe your thing isn't money. Maybe your thing is power. Maybe your thing is sex. Maybe your thing is control. And you don't know how to give it up. And here's the good news to you this afternoon. With man, these things are impossible. But with God, all things are possible. He can reach into your heart and give you a soft heart. We saw this last week, didn't we, with Ezekiel? You see the same thing in the prophet Jeremiah? He wants to give you a soft heart to do this. The first thing is a hopeful thing. We cannot change our hearts, but Jesus can. And if you're in him, remember, he already has. He already has. He's already done this. And he's not done with you yet. He'll finish what he started. The first thing is a hopeful thing. The second thing is a good news thing as well. Jesus points them, and he points us to the better riches. He points us to that which will last. He points them, and he is pointing us here this afternoon to himself. Matthew nineteen twenty nine. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands, take a moment, just fill in the blank for you there. Everyone who's left a suburban dream, everyone who's left a dream of that Tesla, everyone who, you, you fill in the blank, everyone who has done this for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Would you stand with me as we respond this afternoon? Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.